This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, Bush, Obama, Clinton, Romney. Families that called the White House home and one that wants to. We'll hone in on the Romneys, talking to Ben Wallace-Wells, who's unearthed the fascinating story for New York Magazine of George Romney, Mitt's dad, who vied for the presidency in 1964 and 1968 and seemed to have his heart broken in the process. What has his son learned from that history? But first, we're going to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to talk with senior White House correspondent Jake Tapper about another family reunion of sorts, three members of the President's Club, Barack Obama hosting predecessors George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush for the official unveiling of the 43rd President's portrait, always an occasion to bury the hatchet. And we'll catch up with Jake, who I've known for a long time, about his work at ABC and before in print, on the air, and now online. Jake, thanks for coming to Polyoptics. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Josh. Great to be here. First, uh, sorry about your 76ers, but my Celtics seem to now be getting a taste of their own medicine. What do you think? I never thought the Sixers were going to go to seven games. So, um, But yeah, it's, it's always nice to see the Celtics lose. I want to get to Afghanistan in a minute. First, were you at the portrait unveiling this week? The press vision, the press view of everything was really bad. So I actually just stayed in the booth and watched it on the cameras we had because it actually was a better uh, view of everything. If uh, if the hatchet had been buried, how deeply do you think it got buried this week when the, the portrait was unveiled? I, I don't know how much it was about burying the hatchet as much as it was about, you know, there is this, and, and, and uh, some people re- recently wrote a book about this, um, some reporters, but there's this uh, very exclusive club of, of presidents, um, former presidents and current presidents, and, and uh, I, I think there are moments when they all come together no matter what. Uh, and this is one of those moments, the unveiling of the official portraits of, uh, of, of former President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, and, and uh, former First Lady Laura Bush. Uh, a moment like that when they, they talk, they focus on the, the, what it is to, to be American and, and the, the rareness of, of holding this office um, and focusing on the, on the areas in which they agree. Not a lot of policy discussions today, more just a discussion about the niceties that the Bushes um, showed to the Obamas when uh, the Obamas were moving in. Let's listen, if we can, to just a little bit of the audio from the event this week as the portrait was unveiled. I am also pleased, Mr. President, that when you are wandering these halls as you wrestle with tough decisions, you will now be able to gaze at this portrait and ask, what would George do? (laughs) That's a reference, Jake, I think, to an early photo release that Pete Souza put out early in the administration of... uh, President Obama looking at Jack Kennedy's picture, I think, by the staircase uh, near the chief usher's office. Going back to that time, Jake, 2009, President Obama's predecessor was an easy repository for placing the responsibility for a troubled economy. What's your assessment of the way Obama and his staff have used George W. Bush's record from the early days of the administration to today? Has that evolved at all? Well, I mean, he is still... He and and uh, his administration are still the ones they blame for uh, much of uh, the problems they have today when it comes to the economy. The 
President uh, Obama, this then Senator Obama, campaigned quite a bit uh, as as somebody who wanted to undo the damage done by President Bush, in his view, um, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of the economy, and he still refers to. Uh, the mess that was on his plate when he came into office, the financial crisis. And when going after Romney, talks about uh, how Romney wants to double down or, or you know, reenact the Bush policies except on steroids. Those are the terms the president uses. So, I mean, there, there is clearly uh, Bush is a familiar figure of blame in this White House for um, things that have gone wrong that he's still dealing with and also uh, somebody who is held up as an example of what Romney would do wrong, he would follow Bush. You covered the Bush administration as well, not only the president, but the vice president and members of the staff. President Bush has steadfastly maintained this posture of <clears throat> that the current president deserves my silence. And yet, in the face of, of this continuing messaging from the president and the current White House staff, how do you think the uh, the former president and his members of his staff are sort of rationalizing how you how you continue this silence as as you're being used as a foil by the president and, and as the campaign is getting going? Well, I, I don't think that members of his staff have had any compunction about about criticizing uh, President Obama. Karl Rove right. uh, has a, made a career out of it um, to no small degree, and has you know helped start this. Uh, Super PAC, American Crossroads, and and uh, which is you know attacking uh, President Obama all the time. So I don't think there's any been been any compunction there. Uh, President Bush. I mean, former presidents tend to uh, avoid criticism of uh, the their successors, uh, not just George W. Bush and with Barack Obama, but also Bill Clinton with George okay. W. Bush, also George H. W. Bush with Bill Clinton, and. And uh, I suspect that President Obama, when he leaves office, will 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 do the same. Uh, it just it it first of all, I don't think it does you any good uh, when you leave office to to you know you you almost you can become you have an opportunity as a former president to be statesmanlike and take on an enhanced role, uh, and that um, is you know th that actually I, I think is more comfortable for a lot of these individuals. It's more comfortable to be somebody who doesn't have to take positions on the issue of the day and and who can uh, you know avoid the you know being not only attacking but being attacked uh, in that way. So I, I think it's probably more comfortable. And you know I think President President Clinton, for example, has really relished uh, his his new role uh, and has generally speaking avoided criticizing um, Republican politicians uh, as starkly as, as he did when he was president. And that view certainly came through in, in Nancy Gibbs uh, uh, and Michael Duffy's book, The President's Club. We had Nancy on the show a couple weeks ago. And uh, you've also, at least through your tweets, um, expressed a lot of admiration for Robert Caro and the book that he now has out, Passage to Power, which I'm making my way slowly through. And and both in Nancy and Mike's book uh, and also in Robert Caro's book, you see just the the pain and suffering that uh, Vice President Johnson was put through in his years as as vice president and and in the 1960 campaign, and we heard today, Jake, that uh, President Obama made sort of a cordial call to Governor Romney on the uh, at the moment that the Texas primary had put his uh, him over the top in terms of delegates. Do you think there's any kind of wrestling within 
Obama's psyche himself about going on the attack, and you've also covered very clearly what the Obama campaign has did last week with the, the Bain Capital video and this week with the Massachusetts Record video. Is there a wrestling going on in Obama's head about being statesmanlike and civil versus allowing the, this campaign process to, to make its way forward? I, I don't sense any... any uh difficulty at all. In fact, the the opposite. I sense uh, he's relishing uh, getting into the fight. President Obama is a very cagey political operator. Um, And I know one of the ways he does it is by um, pitching himself as above, uh, you know, above the fray and and, uh, wanting to unite everyone. But, you know, you go back to his first race for state Senate, um, and and you see you know you see somebody who is who loves the fight and remember what happened in that first race was um, the state senator I think her name was Alice Palmer was going to run for a different office and then Obama said um, that he he would run and then she decided to change her mind uh, and and Obama said well I'm still running and not only did he win but he very aggressively had his campaign try to disqualify. I think signatures for her to get on ballots, um, and you know he, this is this is somebody who loves political fights. Uh, he does. I mean, I'm sure he'd love to have uh, cooperation when it comes to setting policy, uh, but when it comes to political fights, he, he I, I think he's been chopping at the bit to get in the race. Um, and what you're going to see is uh, this started with the Bain Capital attacks on Romney, and and now with the attacks on Romney as governor. Um, the view of the Obama campaign is that Romney is perceived uh, by many people in the public, many members of the public, as uh, making the pitch that he is successful, therefore he's got to know how to do something for jobs and the economy, and they're trying to puncture that. They're trying to undermine that, saying, well, this is what he views about the economy. He wants to create wealth, not to create jobs. And now to the pivot of, you know, what it meant for the voters and uh, the citizens of Massachusetts, he, you know, the state was 47th in job creation. So they're trying to undermine that. Um, and uh, no, I, I think he's, he's, he loves it. I think he'd rather do that than anything else. You're listening to our conversation with Jake Tapper, ABC News on Polyoptics, Sirius XM, Channel 124 on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Jake, you, you've picked up on the work that Stephanie Cutter and the, the Truth Squad, uh, I think that's what they're called, are doing uh, on the in the Obama campaign from Chicago. And I think you, you wrote somewhat extensively on it. What's your take on sort of the extension of what Obama himself is doing versus a very professional campaign being run out of Chicago? Well, I think that um, I don't begrudge uh, either the Romney or Obama campaigns, you know, trying to serve as truth squads. I I think it's just important for voters to remember that when a campaign uh, or a political organization, um, so some of the media watchers that definitely have political points of view, um, they are not necessarily arbiters of truth. They are... Uh, doing something else. And sometimes they put themselves, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, They are trying to cast themselves as arbiters of truth, and they're not. Something I thought is is dangerous for the Obama truth team is uh, that they are sometimes trying to take areas where there is disagreement, uh, such as how much spending the Obama administration has engaged in, um, areas of disagreement versus... uh, Smears, uh, and I think that that that's a that's a real problem because 
there are going to be, there are now and are, are going to be a lot of smears. And by smears, I mean false charges such as Mormonism is a cult. Uh, Mitt Romney is a member of that cult. Or uh, Barack Obama was born in Kenya. He's not a real American. Those, those are smears. They're not true. To conflate those with um, disagreements or uh, arguments about uh, issues, I, I think, does a, does a disservice uh, not only to uh, the Obama campaign, I mean, not only to the truth, but also to the Obama campaign, because then they uh, undermine um, the important need to correct, you know, smears, which I think are, are, are something that, that it's important for people in the media to, to stand by and say that's factually untrue. The flip side of that, Jake, is uh, in addition to this sort of uh, uh, contrasting campaign, contrasting ads, uh, correcting the record, is the marketing of the campaign. And uh, we saw the 18-minute video that the Obama campaign created uh, a few weeks ago, uh, further uh, video and advertisements put together that referenced the killing of Osama bin Laden. As you frequently do, you were uh, hosting this week, uh, a week ago, and you talked to Defense Secretary Panetta, and you seemed to press him uh, fairly hard on what his view as the Secretary of Defense was about the Obama campaign using imagery and words about that effort uh, to burnish the president's national security credentials. It seemed, as I listened to it, Jake, that Secretary Panetta was trying his best to give a, a an acceptable answer, but he was—he did struggle with it. My view, having participated in that operation, is that uh, it was—it was something very special in terms of, of both the intelligence and military communities working together to go after uh, Bin Laden uh, and doing it successfully. And whether you're Republicans, whether you're Democrats, whether you're Independents, uh, I think this country ought to be proud of what uh, our intelligence and military community did. I, and you know what? I'll, I'll let history be the judge as to uh, whether or not that was a successful mission. Well, obviously it was a successful mission, but the politicization of it, that doesn't make you uncomfortable at all? I, you know, I, I, I would hope that both Republicans and Democrats would be justly proud of what was accomplished. Go ahead, Jake. I, you know, I, th I think Secretary Panetta was... He doesn't want he doesn't want to really get involved in the back and forth in politics. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that as a you know, he's he is a he's a bipartisan guy. But at the end of the day, he's a Democrat. And I, I think that uh, he wants President Obama to be reelected and thinks the foreign policy sphere is an area where he can do that, including uh, the successful mission to kill bin Laden. So uh, I, I what my, my interpretation of what he said was, it doesn't make me uncomfortable that Obama is using this. This is a big achievement. Uh, and when we should all be proud of it. But that's my interpretation. He didn't directly answer the question. And I think that makes a lot of common sense. I mean, you can't you can't on one hand say that uh, uh, talking about your foreign policy is one of which is was this mission is off limits uh, in, in the way you've dispatched the the office of the presidency. There was one sort of uh, uh, moment this week that we do have some audio with that uh, seemed to create a lot of dust. Uh, at least uh, on the Twitters, and I want to hear that, what President Obama was saying uh, as he was talking about the Medal of Honor this week. Before one trip across enemy lines, resistance fighters told him that Jews were being murdered on a massive scale and smuggled him into the Warsaw Ghetto 
in a Polish death camp to see for himself. Jake, what reaction created from that comment uh, by the president? Well, the Polish prime minister, the Polish foreign minister, and a, a number of other uh, uh, Polish government officials were very upset by the reference to Polish death camp. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a Nazi death camp built in German-occupied Poland, uh, and obviously there were a lot of Poles who were opposed to the Nazi invasion and the Holocaust, and including uh, Jan Karski, the uh, the the freedom fighter that. Uh, President Obama was posthumously uh, awarding uh, this uh, Medal of Freedom, uh, and it, ca it caused quite an uproar. The White House has tried to downplay it, say it's say it's just you know he just he misspoke. Um, you know there are I, sh I might get myself in trouble by saying this, but I mean I, I would I, I've talked to people you know Jewish Americans who have said that you know they're they don't really understand uh, all the. Um, outraged by polls, given the fact that, that in the view of many, polls were uh, just as complicit in a lot of the atrocities that took place in Nazi-occupied Poland. This wasn't uh, a place where, you know, the, the, Poland is a place that, that was known for anti-Semitism before uh, World War II, uh, and, and uh, I think a lot of Jewish Americans feel like it was rather ripe ground for the taking. Uh, the the Invasion of Poland and the and the and the the violation of their sovereignty, notwithstanding that there were a lot of Poles that that were part of the Holocaust. But that said, um, you know that 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 I'm not, it's not to defend the the misstatement by the president, uh, who has who has said that you know the White House has said that that that's not what he meant to say, and that he's honored uh, the heroism of Poles and the fact that many Poles were killed uh, by the Nazis during the Holocaust as well. Yeah, you know, that's exactly the way I took it. And no one thinks that uh, President Obama went into that ceremony intending to slight the Polish people. Mm -hmm. And yet it was sort of a an error of speech writing or an error of cards production or or teleprompting p production I think it was on the teleprompter. I think there was a speech. I think it was a speech writing mistake because I think um, I think he read that right from the teleprompter. So uh, yeah, it's it, it bears uh, uh, noting that um, that one of the president's uh, top uh, Speechwriters on foreign policy issues, uh, uh, Ben Ben Rhodes, the deputy yep. national security advisor for strategic communication, is is on vacation this week. <laughs> I'm not I, sure if that's relevant or not, but, no. but he is on vacation this week. And and Ben, after the G8 and the NATO summit, deserves a little bit of a vacation after all the activity that they've been involved in. And it just occurred to me as I was I was um, at Jake and Christine's over the weekend, and I saw this thing dust up. And uh, I just said, can't you come a little quicker and say, hey, guys, it's a speech writing mistake. No offense was intended. They, they seem to have difficulty just getting that deflection out. Yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, I, I don't think that I, I don't think that that um, I mean, look, a lot of people I, I can't get into the minds of the Polish people. They, they the Polish government, they were they were obviously very upset. And, and uh, the White House has said it was a mistake. And uh, I'm sure they would they would take it back if they could. I mean, the irony, of course, is that this was intended to be a big moment to help uh, with relations with uh, right. the Polish people. Uh, the, the idea that they were the White House was uh, presenting a Medal of Freedom to Jan Karski is a huge deal in Poland, yep. uh, which is one of the reasons I think why the reception was the way it was when, when this error was made. They were absolutely trying to do the right thing. I, one thing that came out of this weekend, Jake, is I was at, uh, at 
Jake Seward's house uh, out in Long Island, and sitting on his bookshelf was uh, Down and Dirty, The Plot to Steal the Presidency by, by uh-huh. one Jake Tapper. Um, have you missed book writing? Are you looking forward to getting back to it? Well, I'm, I've, I've been working on this book for the last... Uh, Two years. I've never worked harder on any project than, I, than I've worked on this book. This, it's called The Outpost. It will be out in uh, November, and it's about um, this one outpost in Afghanistan that was built in 2006 and overrun by the Taliban in 2009. And it's about um, the men who served there and women who served there. Uh, and uh, w- after the um, camp was attacked and overrun, and there, there was a lot of media coverage of it because it was at the bottom of a valley of three mountains, about 14 miles from the Pakistan border. And the coverage was along the lines of, why on earth would anybody put an, an outpost there uh, at the bottom of, you know, you're giving up all the high ground and you're so close to Pakistan. Uh, and, and so this was the mystery of the book for me, figuring out why did anybody put a, co- a combat outpost there and what was the purpose and what did they achieve? Uh, and... Um, it's it's a it's a way of looking at and understanding the war in Afghanistan by looking at what happens in this outpost because you get to see one valley everything from the very beginning to the very end of U.S. operations as opposed to you know having to study an 11 or 12 or 13 year war here's one valley one set of gr- uh, group of group of troops uh, and for me it was a, it was just been an unbelievable experience and it's great having two years to work on a book as opposed to you know uh, five or six months. We had uh, Sebastian Younger on the show uh, a few months ago. Um, Great book uh, about uh, that takes place also during the same period that I'm writing about at a neighboring province. His his book War uh, that the film Restrepo was based on um, or was a companion project uh, takes place in Kunar province uh, in 2007. And my book takes place from 2006 to 2009 in Nuristan, which is right next door. Uh, and so there, there, some of the some of the stuff that he wrote about firsthand uh, is in the book, is in my book. Sebastian is a war correspondent, Jake. You've got a day job uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. What's involved with talking to Ben Sherwood and other people at ABC News to say, I want to do this. I want to do something other than my my beat. Well, they've been, ABC has been great about it. And obviously, I wasn't embedded for a year uh, with, uh, with soldiers as um, Sebastian Younger was. Uh, and that's incredible what he did. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I've I've spent the last two years talking to. I've done, I think about. I've interviewed about 200 people for this book, uh, ranging from privates to generals to insurgents, uh, and uh, the experience has been incredible. And uh, I I wasn't I went over to I've been to Afghanistan twice now, uh, once with President Obama. The second time, uh, I was embedded with troops who were as close to the outpost as I could get because we've basically ceded the entire province of Nuristan over uh, to the Afghans. Uh, we basically did that right after the, the, the outpost was attacked in 2009. Uh, and ABC has been great. They, they let me go there. I did a bunch of stories for Nightline. Uh, and then I did some work for my book while I was there. And I'm really glad that I, I got to go because you really just... Uh, you get a sense for the place much more so than you can get just from uh, YouTube videos and and uh, photographs. Absolutely, Jake. I know you got to get back to the beat, and we'll let you go. I just have one more question for you, if you don't mind. You know, you have uh, 175,000 some odd Twitter followers, and which more than anything else shows that the beat that you're 
writing is not Sam Donaldson's beat anymore. To what extent are the, is it great to have these people along for the ride and to, to share your thoughts with them on a moment-by-moment moment basis? And to what extent can they be sort of a, a hectoring mass when things like the birther debate comes out? Uh, I would say Twitter is, you know, about 70% positive, uh, both in terms of uh, hearing from people, learning, uh, talking to real people, learning, uh, breaking news from other reporters whom I admire, you know, actually making friends uh, both with, you know, regular average voters and also with, uh, you know, a a celebrity from a different world whose work you admire and, and they're interested in politics. I've been able to make some connections that way. So it's been great. I've been able to find people affected by stories. For instance, there was a time that an insurance company raised its premiums and, um, you know, there's no way that I would have other than Twitter uh, to find somebody whom that affected. But I was able to. And I think two or three times I've been able to find people affected by stories through Twitter. So that's been great. Jake, you're great to come on. I've uh, been after you for a while to join me on the program. And it's been great having you. Jake Tapper, senior White House correspondent, ABC News, also uh, a great tweeter at Jake Tapper uh, on Twitter. The cultural references that you come up really date yourself and date me too. The blue, <laughs> the blue oyster cult, the Capricorn one. I mean, I, 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 we put ourselves. You, 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 I'm four. I'm 43. How old are you? I'm 47. So we're in the same okay. ballpark. Yeah, same same basic idea. Yeah, no, I know, and it's it's old. It's old. It's not. These aren't like cool Gen X references anymore. Gen X is like with the way that we look at boomers. It's just like we're old people now and making. I'm making old references. Uh, you know, I work with uh, Mary Mary Bruce, who's also a great follow, uh, Mary Kay Bruce. Uh, she's my producer here at the White House booth, and you know she doesn't she doesn't know what L.A. law is. She doesn't know what Hill Street Blues is. It's I feel like uh, it uh, it keeps me old. Twitter I mean, it keeps me old. I mean the American Psycho reference you put in, uh, but that's Capricorn One. It was a formative movie for me. It's a fantastic movie. It's uh, somebody pointed out to me that both of Barbara Streisand's husbands were in that movie, Elliot Gould and uh, James Brolin. And James Brolin, exactly. Well, uh, you know, I I grew up with Mark Leibovitz. He's another great tweeter as well, and and you guys really keep me entertained around the clock. So thank you, and best of luck uh, following the rest of the campaign. Thanks, Jack. Been a lot of fun. So we're now joined by Ben Wallace-Wells, a prolific magazine writer, most recently for New York Magazine, who just blew me away with a piece that appeared in the last issue, George Romney for President, 1968. The subtitle, when the governor of Michigan ran for the Republican nomination in 1968, he tried to stand up against the more radical wing of his party. His defeat was swift, tragic, and for his son, instructive. Ben Wallace-Wells, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks so much for having me. How did you get tuned into this story? I did a long piece for a cover story for New York in October about the interaction about Mitt Romney's time at Bain Capital. Um, and we were, in the aftermath of that story, we were trying to map the uh, the, the kind of vacancy of, of idealism that's sort of apparent with, with Romney on the trail. We are trying to understand... You know, what does this guy really believe and, and, and what are his kind of core convictions? Because I think to a lot of voters and commentators, there's been some, some mystery around that, this campaign. And what we came to again and again is, is you know, you have to go back and look at his father because in, at so many instances in his own life, you know, Mitt Romney talks about, you know, his motivation for running for office and for entering 
the public square as being a kind of continuation of his his father's legacy. And so, what we wanted to do is in, in interrogate in a more serious way uh, what that really meant and what that really looked like. So, one of the characters woven throughout your story is Walter DeVries, uh, who yeah. had a, a a book that he was working on with David Broder, or working on uh, by himself uh, around 2007, 2008, yeah. and uh, had, I guess, a, at manuscript length at some point. Was this something that you had access to to start with? Uh, he abandoned the project, so I, I read a little bit of, uh, about of it, but I, I talked to him um, at great length about it. Walter Vries is a fascinating guy. He was sort of the the kind of Karl Rove of George Romney's campaign. He was his, uh, George Romney's political career. He was chief political strategist from the time that uh, Romney first started thinking about uh, running for public office at the time, he was a, a, a CEO of a large, uh, large automotive company. Uh, through the time that he that he ran for the presidency, and DeVries is a a, a really serious guy. Um, shortly after the collapse of the 1968 campaign, DeVries had a, as many of the Romney staffers did, had a sort of moment of internal political reckoning, and he came out of that as a you know, as a as a Democrat, um, he moved from you know working for Republicans as a consultant to working for Democrats, and in 2007, um, you know, after a long career of of doing this, he and David Broder, who's a close friend of his, had had thought they would write a book together that was called you know uh, it was about Mitt Romney through his father's eyes, uh, and the the title of it was was you know, Mitt, Mitt Romney, his father's son. And he's working on this for, you know, months and months and doing the research. And he just comes to believe, DeVries does, the former consigliere to George Romney, that there's a kind of profound philosophical gap between Mitt and George Romney. And that the kind of thesis of, of his his story that, uh, you know, that, that there are things that you can see in George that you can also see in Mitt is no longer sustainable. And so he has this kind of vivid moment of internal frustration where he calls up David Broder and he says, we've had this story all wrong, you know, and he changes the title of the manuscript to uh, Mitt Romney, the political Mitt Romney, not his father's son. So the manuscript never actually gets published in large part because DeVries um, becomes very sick. Uh, but uh, I thought that that was a, a really kind of moving and elegant moment of alienation and, and of departure. But the the portrait that you paint uh, in so many ways of George Romney, Governor Romney, the CEO of American Motors, the uh, the young man who grew up in Mexico, uh, did so much physical labor, was so yeah. poor for long, so long as, in his life. Yeah. It is in many ways very nuanced, very sympathetic toward George Romney. And I wonder, and I want to know about sort of your research and how you went about unearthing uh, this background. But I wonder that if someone like Mitt Romney and his brothers and his sons uh, have now this very contemporary portrait of their father and grandfather. Have you got any feedback about bringing George Romney to life in the way that you have from the Romney camp? I haven't gotten any subsequent feedback, but but during the the course of reporting the book, I spoke to a couple of his siblings. We quote his older brother Scott Romney in the in the piece and and, and talked to folks within the campaign. Um, I would say that that 
George Romney is idolized by the Rom by the Romneys um, very very much, uh, but that there is a way in which Rom George Romney's ideology has sort of been kind of conveniently stripped away from the way they talk about him. You know, much of his political career involved this very very deeply felt, almost messianic set of conflicts with the rising force of the conservative movement. And this happened on a national level, but it also happened much earlier than that, you know, within local politics in, in, in Michigan. And when Mitt Romney's siblings or Mitt Romney himself talk about George Romney, they, you know, are, are, they focus on his authority, his natural authority, his charisma, uh, his effectiveness as a CEO, uh, all of the things that you can, you can see in, in his son, in Mitt Romney, who does share many of those traits. What they don't talk about is that really, really deep, really, you know, rooted, you mentioned some of his, 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 some of the, you know, impoverishment of his early life, that really, really deep sense of purpose and, and, and belief and, and messianism. Uh, and so there is a way in which, you know, uh, though they talk about him a lot, and though he is central to the kind of narrative of how Mitt became Mitt, it's it's a it's a slightly limited uh, it's a slightly limited portrait. You're listening to our conversation with Ben Wallace Wells on Polyoptics Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS. Ben, want uh, to I want to dive into uh, Governor Romney a little bit more because sure. the, the the verbs and the adjectives that you pull either from your own fingers onto the screen or from people like Bill Whitbeck, you you. Yeah. you, you, you the the word willful is brought up and then Whitbeck sort of says no that's not strong enough it's messianic this guy was John Brown in and it's important for our listeners to say you know you just don't do this <clears throat> every day of the week but there's there's a uh, scenes that you paint of a civil rights activist called Viola Liozzo who was killed in Alabama and he stomped to her Detroit door and told her family her death reminded him of Joan of Arc's he demonstrated for housing integration um, his you say his approach could be theatrical he would barge into labor parades and union plants and environments where he was politically least welcome. I mean, this is a person who, who was. Uh, I mean, to, yeah. to call him John Brown is a major statement. How did you sort of get to that point in your writing? Well, I, 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 I you know, I, I read what he had to say himself. You know, um, much of what I did was, you know, I talked to the surviving aides from from his uh, gubernatorial work and and from his presidential campaign. Many of them are, are are dead now. The remaining ones are almost all over seventy five, um, and they had this this account of him. But if you go through his his papers, are archived at the University of Michigan. You see, and again, again and again, this deep sense of purpose and belief. This the story that you mentioned in passing, which is the uh, the the the, de- the demonstration for housing integration in the suburbs. Not only is that a cause that he pushed throughout his life, you know, in, as governor, he, you know, uh, did a lot to to sort of break up the, the segregation of the suburbs in the Nixon administration, where he became Secretary of Housing and Urban Development after he lost to Nixon in the primary. Uh, he tried to he tried to force. Um, you know, every city around the country that took any HUD money to uh, to integrate racially, like a very, very important cause for him. That that first moment is in his, 
right as he's beginning his first run for governor, and it's in Gross Point, Michigan, which is the heart of the Republican Party. It's the heart of what should be Romney country. It's the wealthiest and poshest suburb in all of Michigan, and it's all white. And there's a civil rights demonstration. This is 1963, I think, very early in the arc of the civil rights movement. And Governor Romney and his daughter just show up in the middle of a demonstration that is basically all black and start chanting for housing integration. And there's something that is, um, to me, and you see this, again, in his sort of writings on Mormonism and, and race, which we can talk about in a little bit if you want, but there's, to me, something very deep and elemental and, and moving about his, his commitment to civil rights, and you see it throughout his career. It's sort of the rock on which his uh, confrontation with Barry Goldwater came to a head, and in, in many ways it, it, it does give a kind of shape to, to much of his career. You also paint a good, uh, vivid portrait of the early years of George Romney. I want to hear um, just a little clip of the of film archive that was unearthed by NBC News a few months ago, just to give you a sense of, of what Governor Romney sounded like when put on the defensive about whether or not he truly understood where people uh, in harder circumstances came from. I've been poor. I've worked from the time I was 12. My parents were driven out of old Mexico when I was only five. My people were revolutionary refugees. They had to be fed uh, by the United States government and housed by the United States government. I know what poverty is. I've been up through it. What, what was the picture that you saw of George Romney uh, coming out of Mexico back to the United States? One of the things that's amazing to me about the, the story of George Romney is how, is how closely it matches the kind of arc of American Mormonism. Uh, at the beginning of his life, uh, you know, Mormonism is a, is a really fringe movement, um, and it's it's so fringe that he and his 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 grandfather and great grandfather had had to emigrate to Mexico in order to practice their religion as they wanted. And he's born in Mexico and is only driven back north by the kind of fallout from the Mexican Revolution. And uh, you know, in he attended six elementary schools in six years. He had this one. His father was a, a sort of carpenter and a low-level contractor who, who really, really struggled for work, and they had this itinerant movement around the American West. They were in Idaho for a while. They were in Colorado for a while. They were in California for a while. They were in Utah for a while. Uh, and what he comes to, you know, at, at the age of 12, he's, he's doing really hard work uh, stripping, uh, you know, with with uh, really hard agricultural work, laborers' work. Uh, by the age of 17, he's training as an apprentice lather. You know, very very uh, laborious work. Um, he goes to college for a year and a half. Um, by the middle of his life, though, uh, he comes to personify sort of modern Mormonism, which is this absolutely enthusiastic. Uh, acceptance and embrace of everything about this country that had a couple of generations before rejected them. You know, this, this idea that Mormons will be more more American than any other American. And the these, design of the country is believed by Mormons to be divinely inspired itself. Divinely inspired. The Constitution itself. You know, the the, the very particular attributes of of the Constitution uh, are are said to are believed to reflect you know God's own design. Um, so there's a real urgent belief, real deep belief, that the country itself is grace-giving. Um, and if you look at George Romney's, the arc of George Romney's life, he, uh, he embraces that and he enacts that, you know. And uh, one of the things that was, was incredibly moving to me in his, 
his uh, his his letters as he will get from the time he's very young, and you know he uh, you know he he kind of made his way up through Washington as a young man in his twenties, uh, but from the time he's very young, he's seen as a public success for Mormons, and so he gets all these letters from young Mormon men who are asking him effectively, you know, how do I make it in this world? You know, how do I make it in this country? And what he says again and again is basically just believe in it, you know, and you know, there's nothing about self-actualization, you know, it's all embed yourself in the institutions of the country, in your company, in your church, in your volunteer organizations, and you will get ahead. And, and I think at, at some fundamental level, he uh, believed in the country in a way that is is very very difficult for us to us to imagine now i believe in it as a as a trans as an agent of, of personal transformation i mean that belief came in full conflict with reality it seems in the summer of 1967 in detroit didn't it it really did um what happened it, so so this is just as george romney is beginning to sketch out his run for the presidency um and so he is you know he's he's uh uh, up on uh, Mackinac Island, which is where the uh, governor's summer re- residence is, and they're flying in Henry Kissinger and all these other experts to kind of coach him on policy. And remember that, you know, George Romney had not only been uh, a, a huge proponent of civil rights, but had done so much work in the black community in Detroit that he was winning 30% of the black vote, which for a Republican is just absolutely unheard of. In his last run for governor for Michigan, he won 30% of the black vote statewide. And um, on July, I think, 23rd, 1967, there's a, a, a small conflict when the cops try to bust up a, a illegal after-hours club about 4.30 in the morning on Sunday morning, so very late Saturday night, uh, on the west side of Detroit, and this riot starts. And uh, it takes about 12 hours before everybody in the governor's office sort of realizes this is not ending, this is not going away. And some of the young staffers in that office who I talked to for the piece and through whose eyes we tell some of this story, up driving down to Detroit and, you know, bureaucratically trying to, to help with what's happening, but also them, they find themselves sort of wrestling with this radical statement of dissent, you know, and they had, many of them, Charles Orlebeck is one, Bill Whitbeck is another, had been, had been working on, po- on policies of integration, you know, uh, themselves. And what they see there is that this riot, which builds over a week and, you know, comes to encompass huge, huge swaths of, of Detroit, uh, you know, uh, the National Guard has to be called in, Johnson is slow with that, uh, really, really major event, uh, major, you know, one of the couple biggest race riots of the late 1960s. What they see, what these young aides see, is not a rebellion of the ghetto, but a, a, a rebellion of the black middle class. And again and again, they find themselves talking to uh, pastors with whom they'd worked on, you know, housing policy and, you know, uh, education policy. And they hear not condemnation of the rioters, but support. They notice that in the middle class neighborhoods, the, the, the riot is, is just as vigorous as it is uh 
in, uh, in, in the poorest neighborhoods. And so there is this sense of sort of existential displacement that you get when you talk to some of these older staffers where they had conceived of their own liberal republicanism. And, and George Romney was very much a liberal republican, and the people who worked with him came up in that tradition as believing in the kind of permanent structures of American civic life and working to welcome everyone in. You know, that's a slightly glossy description. Right. But, you know, and, and what they see is that the people who they had been working hardest at this particular moment in time to welcome in because they were the most alienated African-Americans uh, were rejecting that, you know. So most of us who follow uh, history of the 1960s, you know, you can you, you can only go so deep and and keep it well covered. And you think of 1967, 68 about being uh, uh, Humphrey versus Nixon, uh, yeah. y- and you think about um, really what happened in the summer campaign. You don't think so much about the primaries. The only thing that if, in, in the in the consciousness that you might have a person like me of George Romney you yeah. might know that he was governor of Michigan and you might remember that one day he said he was brainwashed yeah right and and your article gave such illumination to that situation of governor Romney going on a, a little known Detroit radio program called the Lou Gordon program yeah uh, and it seems to be it, it then it metastasized from that moment and then but when you read Ben Wallace Wells full dissertation of what that happened. It, it sounds completely rational that he went to Vietnam and he got a good tour by the military, but he used that word, didn't he? He did, he did. Um, it's a, it's sort of a, an, an incredible uh, interaction of coincidence in history. It, George Romney had been to Vietnam only once in his life in 1965, and he had gone on a governor's tour of, of Vietnam. It was sort of given by uh, the diplomats and the and the generals that were there, and they took a bunch of these governors around, and they sort of showed them uh, what was happening. Uh, and the message that the governors received, Romney and many others, was this is sort of under control. You know, this is not something that is about to spiral out of control. A massive bombing campaign of the North had just begun, and uh, the message that they took away was fairly serene. And so George Romney, as he flies back to Michigan and arrives on the tarmac and is greeted by reporters, says that he has been convinced that the war in Vietnam is morally right. It's morally right. This is 1965. Uh, By 1967, obviously, many, many uh, things have changed. And the Vietnam War, to many people, it looks like a far bigger mistake than it had earlier. And, and this is, you know, you see this in polls, you also see sort of morally correct figures like Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, uh, uh, very loudly, uh, uh, you know, d- denouncing it, denouncing American involvement in Vietnam. And so George Romney, who has been, you know, sort of had real trouble formulating a uh, a foreign policy position on Vietnam, who is very good with sort of tangible policy matters, but struggles a great deal when when things get abstract and principled, um, you know. Uh, but who has been, you know, through through the through 1966 and 1967, becoming sort of himself kind of more quietly disillusioned, shows up on this radio program after a, a kind of crazy incident where his 
grandson gets lost at a at a at the state fair and he has to go chasing around so he's all out of out of whack it's but just a local it, radio program it's it's not a big note outside yeah, michigan at that yeah, point it's, it's, it? it's like the eighth most important thing on his schedule that day you know and um the host says uh says you know what about that statement that you made in 1965 that uh that uh, you know that, that that the intervention in Vietnam is morally right. Do you, do you still believe that? Do you stand by that? And Romney takes a breath and he just goes on this absolute tear. And he says, "While I was there, I got the greatest brainwashing that you could imagine." And, the, and let's let's hear it right now, so we can react to it. Well, you know, when I came back from Vietnam, I just had the greatest brainwashing that anybody can get when you by the general when you go over to Vietnam. Well, not only by the generals, but also by the diplomatic uh, corps over there. And uh, they, they do a very thorough job. And uh, since uh, returning from Vietnam, I've gone into the history of Vietnam all the way back into World War II and before. And as a result, uh, I have changed my mind uh, in that particular. Uh, I no longer uh, believe that uh, it was necessary for us to get involved in South Vietnam to uh, stop communist aggression in Southeast Asia uh, and to prevent uh, communist domination of, uh, I mean, Chinese communist domination of Southeast Asia. And I think that what you hear in there, and you hear in the in the energy with which he says it, is a really profound disillusionment, um, and a sense that he himself and his, his trust in the military and the institutions of the country has been betrayed. And you point out in the first, in the same paragraph, I think, that you're talking about the Lou Gordon program, that Romney uh, was running a very sort of uh, localized campaign doing smaller events. And and you write, Nixon, meanwhile, was running a brilliant mass media campaign, soon to be orchestrated by his aide, Roger Ailes. No baby kissing, no handshaking, no factory gates. Uh, How was Romney's comment about being brainwashed uh, brought to popular consciousness at this point? How does that get out? First in the New York Times, uh, is a, you know, it, it, the, 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 the show was taped um, four days before it ran, and something like three days after it was taped and the day before it was ran, uh, before it ran, the, the Detroit man in the Bureau of the New York Times gets a call, in the, the man in the Detroit Bureau of the New York Times gets a call from Lou Gordon, the radio host, who says, hey, I think, I think this might be interesting to you. And uh, the guy puts out a small, uh, a small piece in the next day's Times that says, you know, on radio program in Detroit, Romney claims he was brainwashed over Vietnam. And immediately and this is the moment where uh, Theodore White and other kind of chroniclers of this campaign say that you know George Romney a very old school you know guy a guy who seems sometimes more 19th century than 20th comes into full conflict with a 21st century media machine within a couple of days he's been denounced as we could imagine happening today you know by every political figure under the sun, you know, uh, his old friend Bob McNamara, who's now the Secret- uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, you know, the, the head of the Republican Party in Iowa, you know, obviously all of the surrogates of the, uh, uh, you know, all of the rival campaigns, his own the Detroit News, which had been the main sponsor of his career, uh, says that he's no longer fit for the presidency. And so there's this incredible 
storm of uh, of, of reaction. And right now, that word brainwashing doesn't seem so insane. You know, it, it doesn't have this kind the, of connotation. The, that, that was the age of the Manchurian candidate. Manchurian uh, candidate, and 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 there is this, you know, there's this very explicit connection between that word brainwashing and the idea that of of kind of communist mind control. So it sounded a little crazier than it than it than it does now. Um, and then. And then you get into this. Look, the the show Polyoptics is all about the theater of politics, and Romney is a very theatrical man, as you put out. Yeah. And and you know, as as he takes his campaign resources and figures out what to do with his time, he doesn't sort of go to campaign to his base. He takes, as you say, uh, s- uh, advance people across seventeen cities. And yeah. what kind of events does he do? He doesn't go to places that Republican voters are going to be found. He goes to the ghetto. Why does he do that? This is, in some ways, both the, the, the stupidest and the most moving part of the whole George Romney story for me. I mean, you know, this is a man whose who's campaign for the presidency is about to fall apart, and he says, uh, you know, we, have a, 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 we must rouse ourselves from our slumber to listen to the voices from the ghetto. He's so, we're still two months after the Detroit race riot, and he's so profoundly disturbed by that, so moved by that, that he's going to begin his campaign for the Republican nomination for president by going to Watts and to East St. Louis and to Washington, D.C., and to, you know, inner-city Chicago and inner-city Detroit. And he spends a better part of a month doing this and probably meets with not a single perspective you know, Republican voter. In the midst of this presidential campaign, he's going with one aide into housing projects on his own and just, you know, meeting people and trying to figure out, you know, what's the level of disturbance? What's going on? Why are people rioting? Uh, and what he says over and over to these audiences, and they're, they're you know, he meets with Saul Alinsky at one moment. He meets with a young Marion Barry. Uh, he holds meetings under portraits of Stokely Carmichael and, and Malcolm X. Uh, he is engaged. He's earnest. Uh, you know, but he, um, you know, what he tells his audiences over and over again is don't look to government to solve your problems. Look to the private sector. This is a main theme of his political life. In some ways, it's sort of what, what kept him a, a Republican, this idea that, you know, the independent sector voluntary groups, church groups, could solve, uh, could solve the, all of the problems that America has. You know, we don't need big government. We can be progressive in our ideals for the country and our hopes for the country, but that progressivism can be vested in the private sector. And I think it's a really important moment for American politics that happens then, you know, these men and women stare back at him and say, what are you talking about? You know, church groups? You know, like Detroit is burning. And, uh, you know, one of the, the realizations that, strike Walt, that strikes Walter Vries, who we talked earlier about, and, and Jonathan Moore, uh, another one of his aides, uh, who sort of crossed the line that George Romney always pulled back from and go and, and just become Democrats, is that uh, that liberal Republican ambition, which depended in, in large part on private sector progressivism, is is very, very hard to sustain in a kind of post-1967 climate. It's just hard to believe that those groups could do what you want them to. And so progressivism from then on, sort of slowly, but we, we really see this now, becomes almost wholly vested in, in, in the Democratic Party. So it's, it's sort of a, a, a fascinating and, and, for me, in some ways kind of tragic moment. 
And as history will record, that was six or eight months later, Richard Nixon uh, won the election and yeah. became president of the United States. Ben Wallace-Wells, uh, you can find his work uh, at so many uh, great magazines, The Atlantic, New York Times, Washington Monthly, uh, and this in New York Magazine, uh, Romney for President, uh, 1968. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Just share with us uh, one more comment that he makes to another aide, Bill Whitbeck, which comprises the last five words of your story. This is 1972, and he's right at the end of working in the Nixon administration, where he's tried to insert a kind of uh, uh, progressivism into this heart of this modern Republican Party that he sees growing up around him, which is much more cynical than he is. And he's failed. And every week he flies back to Michigan, and and, uh, Bill Whitbeck who's a young, a young eight, former aide of his, picks him up at the airport and drives him home, and they talk about politics. And this one day that Whitbeck remembers, uh, Romney flies back, and he's broken down and, and kind of weary. And at the end of the ride, he just says, Bill, politics will break your heart. It's an amazing story. Ben Wallace-Wells, thanks for joining us on Polyoptics. It's been fun. Bye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. 